When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your scriptures are true, that they accurately represent what happened. We thank you that the scriptures are also truth, that you present us with an accurate view of the world, of yourself, and of us. Father, we ask, we thank you that the scriptures are also testifying to what you have done for us in Jesus Christ, as well as our proper response to that. And so we ask that you would be opening our eyes, that you would be opening our ears, so that we might hear, but opening our hearts by the power of the Spirit, that you would grant us understanding and faith. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We all talk about love. The world talks about love. Most songs that you listen to on the radio are about Love. It's a common subject. Why is it such a common subject? We could posture all kinds of reasons, but I think it all goes back to this very reason, is that we are made in the image of God. The God who has declared himself to be love. And because we're made in his image, we have a longing for love. We were made to love first God and then one another. But we also find that this world is not full of love like we hope. It seems hard to find true, meaningful love at times. We're often disappointed in how people treat us. We often feel lonely and afraid. I want us to point want to point us back to Jesus 
and His love and what He calls us to do as a result. The big idea this morning is that His love never fails, even when ours does. Let's start with what seems to be a disconnected thing from love, and that is glory. Jesus' death brings glory to God the Father and the Son through love. Why am I making this connection between glory and love within the context of this passage? And I think it's because we have to remember what takes place here in that Judas has just left the room. Judas has just been revealed as the betrayer of Jesus Christ, and he's going to set in motion all of the circumstances that will lead to Jesus' death upon the cross. He's going to betray him. So Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross lies behind everything that goes on in this context, in this passage. And the death of Jesus is rooted in love. He came precisely because the Father loved us and sent His Son that has been the drumbeat throughout this entire gospel. The sentness of Jesus. The love of the Father. And Jesus, loving His Father, is obedient to His Father. And Jesus, loving the sheep, comes to die for the sheep. And so it's all consumed or subsumed in this idea of love. Both Father and Son love God's people. And the Son has come to die to bring those wandering people back. Now, if we keep in mind that this is an act of love that Jesus is about to partake in, we recognize that this act of love is about to bring Him great glory. Think about this for a second. Judas leaves the room, and the first thing that that Jesus says is, the Son of Man is glorified. He goes right from Judas departing to glory for the Son of Man. Because he is one who loves. He says that God is glorified in him, referring to the Son of Man. In other words, it's not just Jesus, the Son of Man, who's going to get glory from this, but God the Father is going to get glory from this. That's not all. We see this is a, this is in a sense a reflection of what we find in Isaiah 49, where Isaiah says, And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Pointing to Christ, the greater servant of the servant songs here. He's not speaking to Israel alone, but to the true Israel, Jesus Christ, and the Father is glorified in the Son. And that's exactly what we see taking place here in the upper room. Jesus is saying, the Father will be glorified in me. And as a result, Jesus says, God will glorify me, or the Son of Man, in Himself. There's a whole lot of glory going around. 
There's an abundance of glory that is to be had by this and glory that is bestowed freely between the Father and the Son. There's something I think of, of the indwelling, the mutual indwelling of the Father and Son that's, a, that's at play in here, that they're so closely aligned with one another that one cannot receive glory alone without the other also receiving glory. This is a poor illustration of this, but work with me for a second. Okay. For some of you, it's almost football season. Okay. Now, when that running back takes that ball and breaks out a big run and crosses the, the line, the goal line, and gets a touchdown, and the crowd erupts, assuming it's the home crowd, I mean, you know, the home team, okay, there's glory, right? And they're celebrating the glory, and they're giving each other high fives and everything else. But what should be happening, so to speak, because they're teammates, is that if the running back hears, great run, he should be able also to say, great block. Without you, I was not able to cross that line. That's, I think, a little tiny fragment of what this is like. As the, as the Father and the Son share the glory because they love each other. They want to honor each other. And they've been working together to accomplish this great act of salvation. And so there's glory all around. But let's think again. Betrayal. Slander. Wrongful execution. This sounds more like a Greek tragedy than a glorious story, doesn't it? But what we see here is, once again, God is turning these things, these ugly things, into glory because it's designed for the deliverance of his people. This is a, a greater fulfillment of what we see or saw back in Genesis 50, as Joseph said to his brothers who had betrayed him, selling him into slavery, think, thinking that he was going to die. As for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it, not just used it, meant it, ordained it. He meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so we have to remember, brothers and sisters, I think as we look at this, that God isn't glorified only by the good stuff in our lives. But He's also He also glorifies Himself in the not-so-good stuff of our lives, in the bad and ugly things of our lives. I'm thinking specifically in this instance with the affliction that we experience, whether it be sort of natural affliction, you know, uh, illness, okay, or job loss, something like that, or when we suffer specifically at the hands of another through oppression or sin. That God, while that person may have meant it for evil, God means it for good, for something in your life. It's not going to be wasted by Him, but He has a plan and a purpose, even if we don't understand it. It could be to lead us to Himself initially in, in, 
a salvation and conversion, or it could be to, to purify us. But he gets glory as he uses these things for our ultimate salvation. Let's not lose sight of that as we move on in the rest of this text. And so the cross brings Father and Son glory as the supreme act of love for salvation. Now let's get to the heart of the issue. Jesus' love is the standard and pattern for our love. Jesus issues, he shifts direction by issuing a new command. It's sort of like, as you're, you're reading it, it doesn't quite make sense how Jesus jumps around. And as we've said before, Jesus often likes to confound us. Okay, By shifting the gears, you're, you're intended to, wait a minute. Okay, He draws attention to what he's saying by, this, by how he says it. Okay, You're meant to go, wait a minute, that doesn't connect. This must be important. That is what it is, I think. And so he issues this new command, which is in many ways an old command with a new element added to it. We heard from Leviticus 19 about how they've always been commanded to love their neighbor. We see in Mark 12, when Jesus is asked what the greatest commandment is, he reads that the most important is, and he reads, and he Mentions from Deuteronomy, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, and he quotes Leviticus, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. Paul also instructed the love of neighbor and when he, he thought of this in Romans 13, he says that the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, or any commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So there's the, the old law, so to speak. But now Jesus adds a new element. That you love one another, that's the old part, just as I have loved you, which is the new part. His love is meant to be the new standard or measuring stick of love. If we think about it in terms of Romans 13, which brings us back to the, uh, the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments, we essentially see Paul saying, love does no harm to its neighbor. Okay? All of the commandments that he mentions are, don't do this, and all of those things that you could do would hurt somebody by killing them, stealing from them, lying about them, taking their spouse from them, okay? That's been sort of shifted into, instead of doing no harm, it includes that, okay? It doesn't obliterate that, but extends it to, I think, this idea of doing all that is necessary and that is needful. Because that is how Jesus has loved us by doing that which is necessary, 
and needful. And we have to keep this. He says, okay, this is past tense. as I have loved you. Okay? So this includes what Jesus has just done in the washing of their feet. Okay? Let's think about that for a moment. We talked a little bit about it last, you know, a month ago. Okay? But let's memory refresh. All right? Not a table like we have a table. It's a lower table. And for those special meals, they would have these low couches. And you would recline on the couch. And uh, someone would lean on you. And your feet would inevitably be in somebody's face. Doesn't that sound exciting? <laughs> I was watching Rescue Dawn last night. And uh, the way they... It was about a prisoner of war in the Vietnam War. And the way they had them, they, was, they were head to toe, lined up next to each other while I slept. That had to have been exciting, I'm sure. So anyway, it's like that. And what, what would happen if everyone's feet were dirty? Who wants to eat that meal? Now, there should have been a slave to come and wash feet, but apparently there wasn't one to come and wash feet. That was, the, that was the practice of the day. I'm not advocating slavery. Don't misunderstand me. Okay? But that was the practice of the day. Okay? And instead of Jesus perhaps identifying the low man on the totem pole within the group of the disciples, which in my sinfulness I'd say, Judas, it's time to wash the feet. But Jesus didn't do that. He took the towel. He took the basin. He washed their dirty feet. That is, in a sense, I think, the measure of love. The pattern of love. See, his, pa- his love is also the pattern that we're intended to follow, sort of like a, a dressmaker will follow a particular pattern. So I hear I don't make dresses. Okay? But, you know, they, they measure it out and, and mark it and with the chalk, and then they cut along that, and they, you know, they sew it together. Or how some of our people who are engineers have a blueprint, so to speak, a pattern by which they now put together this technology. Okay? Or a plane. Steve Boyer doesn't just make it up as he goes along, I hope. <laughs> You'd yeah, be surprised. <laughs> Scribble it down after the fact, right? <laughs> okay, I understand now. It's supposed to be a pattern that is followed. And Jesus' love is, is what sets us free, first of all, in order to love because we're so selfish, but also is the pattern that we're intended to follow to know how to love other people because precisely we stink at it because we're sinners. We need a pattern, and Jesus is the pattern. That's part of why, how John Newton, or why John Newton says, by beholding, meaning Jesus, we are gradually formed into the resemblance of him whom we see, admire, and love. As we look upon Jesus, and in this case, as we look upon how Jesus loved, we will begin to love more and more as Jesus did because we will become more and more like him as it talks about in 2 Corinthians 5. We behold His glory and we become glorious. That's part of our sanctification. And so, let's look at the pattern for a second. First off, 
if we look up ahead, I mean, not ahead, we look behind, okay, we see that it declares that Jesus knew who he was, Jesus knew where he came from, Jesus knew where he was going, and then he loved them to the full. Jesus served them out of a full knowledge of his identity. Now, his status as son of man did not prevent him from serving them in this particular way. In fact, he did it as the son of man. And so for us, we really need to grasp and understand ourselves in our gospel identity before we're going to love. We have to remember that in Christ we are, we are justified, we are being sanctified, we are adopted as his sons and daughters. Okay, have a sense of who we are in Christ so that we're able to love freely. Okay? Instead of loving with an eye towards getting or loving because we think we have to earn something. Okay? We have it all in Jesus. Okay? We're not trying to love to get. That's one of our struggles, I think, a lot of times, is we do things that look like love that really are selfish. To get something from somebody else. But it looks like love. But I'm talking about really loving. Apart from the gospel facts of who we are in Jesus and what he has done for us, the imperatives, the gospel commands become burdensome. But when we keep our eyes upon the gospel facts, we, those commands are not as burdensome. And we have the capacity to begin to walk in them. Secondly, I think this pattern shows us that Jesus loved fully and at great cost to himself. He didn't just love unto humiliation by acting as a slave, but we'll see that Jesus is now also about to love unto death. It surprises me sometimes where uh, I see love. Sometimes it's in unexpected places. I'm pleasantly surprised by my father. I watch him care for my mom while I was on vacation. And while he says his life is over, his life is being sent, spent in service to my mother who can give him nothing because she has Alzheimer's. That is love. Full cost gain nothing. There has to be no limit to our love for one another. That's hard to hear. That's hard to conceive of. But there has to be no limit to what it might call us to do. If we think about Romans 5 and the love of God that is revealed in the sending of the Son and the dying of the Son, this happened, according to Paul, while we were helpless, while we were ungodly, while we were sinners, while we were His enemies. 
And so there's no limits. We're called to love one another when the other person is helpless. When they can't help themselves, when they're weak, when they're homebound, when they're just destroyed and seemingly incapacitated by their sin. We love them, we're supposed to love them when they're sinning. When they haven't repented yet, when they're still acting in an ungodly fashion, we're still called to love them. It will look a little different. Okay? It's doesn't it's not all soft ooey gooeys, okay? It's hard love, but it's love. When they're acting as our enemies, when their powers are pointed at us, not just someone else. We're to love them. Not put limits. Well, I'll love them when they start being nice to me. That is not love, brothers and sisters. So, loving people means that you don't necessarily like those people. And that often is the point. I had one of those moments driving down I, not I, uh, State Road 27 in Florida, frustrated with some people in the congregation in Florida. And, I, okay, I did not hear the voice of Jesus say, but let's pretend I did. <laughs> he said, I, or it, the coin dropped for me, Steve, you don't have to like them, but you have to love them. You have to do good to them, even when they don't want to do good to you. Even when they're undermining you and trying to destroy you, you are to continue to do good to them. It's like washing dirty feet. It's messy, but it's love. And so Jesus kind of goes further. This is how they'll know you're my disciples if you love others. If you love one another, our def the defining mark of discipleship is not being able to quote from John Calvin, hither and yon, the defining mark of discipleship, and I like quoting from John Calvin, is love. Not mastery of the Westminster standards, however important they are, and they are important. But love is far more important we could go to 1 Corinthians 13 and start insert things. Though I have memorized the hymnal. <laughs> though I have memorized the Westminster Standards. Though I have read all of Calvin's commentaries. And if I have not love, I am nothing. I am but a clanging gong. If I have not love. Paul got it. John got it. Because as we heard from his first letter in the, in the third chapter, if you don't love your brother, you're lying when you say you love God. So it's the defining mark of our discipleship. In fact, the early Christians, Tertullian testified, quoting unbelievers of the day, see how they love one another how they are ready even to die for one another. Paul in Galatians says that the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself 
in love. Which is why Jack Miller has, has written, Our faith is made visible in a life of love. And so faith in Christ expresses itself in love. Let's get specific. Love within the family. You are intended to continually love the people who are part of your nuclear family and your extended family. It expresses itself in love with those in the church, if you're, since you're a Christian. Your neighbors, your friends who are Christians who go to other churches. But if you have no love, do you have Christ? Is what Jesus would be getting at. So what is this love prompted by the Spirit? I think we would say that it is service. Meeting needs, legitimate needs. It's spending time in prayer for those people. That's how you love people. Service and prayer. You could go back in Leviticus 19 and, and see, I think the gleaning laws are intended to be love of neighbor. They don't have enough, so you leave some on the field so that they can eat. All right, I need to move on. Jesus loved us fully and completely to show us the standard and pattern of love that is to be found among us. So thirdly, Jesus loves us even in our failures. See, now this takes this other interesting turn. Jesus talks about this place where he is going and no one else can go with him, just as the Pharisees, as he told the Pharisees earlier in this gospel. And, and Peter is not happy with that. Peter says, I want to go with you. And Jesus says something he didn't say to the Pharisees. Not now, but later, you will come with me. Okay? And that's when Peter says, I want to go now. I'm willing to lay down my life for you. What is he saying? I love you, Jesus, to the death. I just heard what you said, and I'm in. That's Peter, right? Impetuous. I'm all in, man. <laughs> I'm going to die for you. Oh, to hear that news. Not sure how Jesus said it. Probably not angrily. I imagine it was with tenderness, but I could be wrong. Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Talk about pulling the rug out from under Peter's feet. But we recognize as we read on that Peter is not like Judas. Peter denied him, did not betray him, but still. But it's a temporary setback for Peter. It was a permanent one for Judas. What's going on here? There's, I think, two main options 
for what's going on here. And the first is that Peter may be full of pride and may therefore be overestimating his commitment to Jesus. I'm all in. I can do this. The function of his pride, which means it's a function of his indwelling sin, which leads people to boast, to overestimate their ability to love and serve Jesus. And let's not think Peter's the only one who's done this. How many of you, after you have committed a particular sin, vowed never again? Is it within your power to do that? No. You could say, please, Lord, never again. (laughs) But, okay, we sometimes take vows, and sometimes they're very positive vows, very good things, but it's really a function of our pride, which again is a manifestation of our indwelling sin. The second reason that this may have happened here, is that Peter may have truly had a great aspiration. I mean, he sincerely longed to do this. He wasn't just boasting, but he found, like so many of us do, that he could not live up to that aspiration. And once again, we would see the power of indwelling sin which leads us to fail to fulfill our aspirations. There is a very good reason that Romans 7 is in the Bible. We need that reminder of indwelling sin. As Paul talked about how, you know, there's the good I want to do, and I don't do it that I don't fulfill my aspirations. And then there's the things I don't want to do, sin, and that's what I end up doing. If you're not familiar with that struggle, you've got to ask, there's something wrong. Because <laughs> if Paul felt it, and I'm a Christian, I ought to feel it that there ought to be moments in my Christian experience where I'm going where Paul goes, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? I ought to feel that once in a while. Sadly, I do. Indwelling sin. It's like carrying a terrorist group in your heart. Always undoing the good that you intend, that you long for. None of us lives as we desire to live in Jesus Christ. That is why Calvin, I'm quoting from Calvin, Let us learn to distrust our own strength. Of course, we're not doing this from memory, so I'm good. And to betake ourselves early to the Lord that he may support us by his power. In other words, don't trust yourself. Run to Jesus. That's what he's saying. We need to remember this because all of our heroes fail. Okay? Okay? 
all are revealed as sinners of various stripes. Moses, murderer. Moses had anger issues. He hit the rock. That was Christ. David, he had multiple issues. He had women troubles. That led him to murder and cover up until Nathan came and revealed his sin to him. It's been a couple of months of craziness as idols have fallen. Bill Cosby. I loved laughing at Bill Cosby's jokes. And now I feel guilty if I do. Because now I know what he is. And that's not all he is. He was also a great comedian, but he was also a serial rapist. We found out this week, probably wasn't a surprise to many people, Hulk Hogan, racist. We recently found that Tullian Trevidian, who was, for many people I know, a sort of hero, now an adulterer. That's all of us. We could all end up there. Our love, in other words, is often going to fail. It's often going to come short of God's commands. It's often going to come short of our own desire. I think, for instance, of of my desires as a dad. I want to be gentle with my children. But some days... (laughs) I want to become Homer. I want to go... I don't, thankfully, by the grace of God. But, you know, we, I'm not the dad I want to be. I'm not as patient. I'm not as kind. Uh, you know, I'm not as available, however you want to put it. I'm not the dad I want to be. I'm not the husband I want to be. I'm not the pastor I want to be. I'm not the man I want to be. And I think all of you can say the same thing in your own circumstances and vocations. If not, let's go have lunch. Okay? Peter's setback, again, it's not final. And the reason it's not final is not found in Peter. It's found in Jesus. Because while Peter's love fails... Jesus' love doesn't fail. His is strong. Peter, like you, is caught in the strong hand of love that will not let him go, even though he denies Jesus. He forgives Peter. He renews Peter. He sends him out in his name. This is why John Newton writes that we serve a gracious master who knows how to overrule even our mistakes 
to his glory and our own advantage. And so earlier I talked about God ordaining the, the afflictions we experience for his glory and for our good, but he would also, we should also think that even our sin is ordained by God for his glory and our good, as hard as that is to kind of figure out. Most likely because it humbles us. And we need to recognize how dependent we are upon Him for all things. And as hard as it is to kind of figure out, I think, to, to kind of make, you know, the, the slot fit the, the flap and all that kind of stuff. Remember, God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Okay? I'm not, I'm not preaching heresy up here. Uh, or the, or the Westminster Confession of Faith is heresy. He ordains our sin in part, most likely, to humble us and to keep us close to Jesus. Otherwise, we go off into self-righteousness and perdition. Jesus' love never fails. It never fails to bring Him glory never fails to bring the Father glory. It never fails to reveal the full magnitude and power of God's love. His love never fails to reveal the pattern for love that we're to follow. His love never fails to bring all His people home because it never fails to forgive us when we repent. His love never fails to change us, although we wish it were faster but we can rest in His love because His love indeed is strong. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Jesus. Without Him, we would be lost. And we thank You that it is all of Jesus. Not just a bit of Jesus and the rest us. For as we have often sung, we are prone to wander, prone to leave the God that we do love. But our love is so fickle. It's seemingly fleeting. I thank you that your love is not. So, Father, as we all struggle with the fickleness of our love for you and for one another, as we, as we, we struggle and, and bemoan, in a sense, the weakness of our love, let us remember to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who knows the sin that entangles and sets us free. who was born the wrath due, the fickleness and weakness of our love, who has loved us to the full when we were enemies. Help us to look not just at ourselves, but even more at Jesus, that we might begin to love like Him more and more because we become more and more like Him 
And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.